How is it going, everyone? Happy weekday greetings. Welcome and thank you for joining us for the very fourth episode of the Downtime Game Podcast. That is one whole month. Go us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> bringing you news, reviews, and thoughts on the latest and greatest in the world of board games, video games, and anything else you can do in your hard and downtime. My name, as always, is Sam Agolini, and joining me across the heat waves again is the one and only Chris Horswell. Hi, oh, mate. Again, another cracker, Sam. Another cracker. You, you think like pre write some of these, but no, nah, that is that was some good organic material. <laughs> that, that was off the cuff as well. I changed airwaves to heat waves because I am at 4 million degrees. Mate, it is too hot. Like, no matter how much fans and windows and lack of clothes I'm wearing, you know, like create an image for the uh, audience, but <laughs> it's not doing anything. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we've been allowed before whether we mention it, but obviously we're both in rooms with fans going and windows open and ambient noise is probably going to be at a plus. But because London is currently it's like 34 degrees, 36 degrees, and we are not built for this heat at all. No, like air conditioning doesn't exist in residential. And like my beers are getting warm sitting here next to us while recording. And I only bought them like an hour ago. You know, I'm doomed to enjoy warm beer and tepid water. <laughs> yeah, my, I went and got beer just before this. That is now warm. I've got two glasses of water, which had ice in. The ice is already gone. And we've been recording two minutes and ten seconds. <laughs> uh, I don't like it. I don't. I don't know how people live in hot country. I, I. I mean, I guess if it's this hot all the time, you would have better air cooling infrastructure. But just here, the, the three weeks a year that it's hot, I absolutely hate it. I just do not enjoy this at all. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, we don't have aircon, but at least if you're working from home, you can wear whatever you like, aka nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you do you, Sam, you do you. I've been, I've been wearing shorts and swim trunks for the last month and a half, so yeah. <laughs> swim trunks? Oh my god, I had not thought of swimming trunks. I'm just wearing regular shorts. Swimming trunks sound thinner. Can I throw it out there? Like, I, I got a new pair of swimming trunks a couple of weeks ago. I've not worn them for swimming, but my days. Wearing them for working at home? Amazing investment. No I assume, you, I assume you mean shorts and not, like, speedos. <laughs> You're not like... Yeah. And us in speedos, like stretching and flexing in your new speedos, like these are great. Wearing socks and sandals and the speedos, are yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're right. They're, they're shorts. Like, come on. <laughs> All right, then. All right, let's crack on. Let's crack on. What's going on? What's going on? That, let's dive straight into this week's top board and or video gaming news. Each week, we select a list of stories that we think are interesting or worth discussing, and we'll bring them directly to you fine people. Uh, this week, we've got one, two, three, four, six stories. So let's crack on with number one, which is bah, 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 Apple blocks Project xCloud on iOS. And Microsoft is not happy about it, funnily enough. So this comes from Eurogamer. Apple has blocked Project xCloud on iOS. Microsoft has abandoned testing the streaming servers on Apple devices and issued a strongly worded statement criticizing Apple's decision. In a statement to Business Insider, Apple said it blocked Project xCloud because it can't review each game on Game Plus. In quotes, the App Store was created to be a safe and trusted place for customers to discover and download apps and a great business opportunity to all developers. Before they go on our store, all apps are reviewed against the same set of guidelines, blah, blah, lies and nonsense. Um, so Microsoft's re- 
battle was, in quotes, our testing period for the Project X Cloud Preview app for iOS has expired. Unfortunately, we do not have a path to bring our vision of cloud gaming with Game Pass Ultimate to gamers on iOS via the App Store. Apple stands alone as the only general purpose platform to deny consumers from cloud gaming and game subscription services like Game Pass, and it consistently treats gaming apps differently, applying more lenient rules to non-gaming apps, even when they include interactive content. So basically, Apple are being terrible, and their, their excuse is nonsense. And I mean... The Microsoft rebuttal is pretty strongly worded as well and just blaming this entirely on Apple. Which, fair enough, like, you know, pot kettle at that point, you might as well say as it is, like, Apple probably aren't going to go back on their decision now they've made a decision. Not without a check well, or some money heading really, their way. That's it, isn't it? I think Sweeney was saying about the 30% tax that Apple chuck on all their games in the App Store. Yeah. And, you know, like, this is probably a case of we've denied it because you're not paying us enough to warrant the risk as they see it. Even though we're reading the article and thinking about how the App Store works, is it that much risk? You know, all of the games are going to be checked by independent bodies and given age ratings depending yeah. on that. I'm sure with phones, you can actually set all your settings in place. So, you know, like all your child locks and protection measures for kids. And I'd assume that Microsoft could quite easily install that for Game Pass, where these games are going to be above X age content and that then works with the parental controls. Yeah, so all of this is quite easily fixed, in my opinion, if they actually gave. I don't. Think, shit. I mean, it's it's not that. It's. I mean, the statement's bullshit. It's just a reason to block it. But I mean, like they don't. Apple aren't going in and reviewing every movie on Netflix. You know, they're not going into Amazon Prime and review like and making sure that every single show on Amazon Prime is like iPhone worthy or like fucking Crunchyroll with like an anime streaming service. Like no one at Apple is going to sit down and watching every anime and reviewing it before they give put the service on. And there's only a, you know, and some of them are dodgy. But I was gonna say the Crunchyroll is a great example. Because like some of them are dodge. And there's only a hundred games in Game Pass. There's absolutely no way this is a content issue. They it, this is because it's a direct competitor, they think to the Apple Arcade stuff and their gaming ambitions, whatever shit ambitions they have, and they've just blocked it for some nonsense reason, and Microsoft are rightfully calling them out on it completely. I forgot about the Apple game. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I know they had like the monthly subscription, yeah. didn't they? But as soon as you mention that, I'm like, actually, there you go. There's a financial rub here. You know, like Apple is always going to go in terms of money. You can say whatever you want, make up whatever excuses you want. And like, maybe I'm being a bit critical of Apple as a business. No, they but. Considering they are very anti-consumer and how they tout new products, making sure that they had like unique charging cables compared to micro USB Cs and stuff like that, they are fairly often screwing over consumer between generations of hardware just to make extra money on it. So it makes sense that this is. I think you hit the nail on the head. Didn't think about that beforehand. I yeah. think you've hit it. Yeah. They lose out on five pound a month for their streaming gaming service because. Why would you pay Apple anything when you've already paid Microsoft for the ultimate package? Yeah, exactly. And 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 I mean Apple's one is mobile games as well, obviously. And there is, you know, why not that mobile games are inherently bad, but obviously they are smaller, shorter experiences. I mean, some of them are obviously tooled for that sort of like one hand shorter experiences and that does them really well. But why would you pay for that? Maybe their thinking is why would you pay for that service when you can get full Xbox, you know, running off of one uh, Series X servers, even direct your phone, like full fidelity, Horizon 4, like Forza Horizon 4. Why would you then go for a mobile service, you know? So maybe that's what they're thinking. But I mean, Apple are like this. They've, they've become way more insular recently. And some of the decisions they're making are just so... I know you said, you said anti-consumer and it is quite strong, but it does seem that way. Like they want Apple to be such mm. a controlled, walled garden and iOS and, and the Macs and stuff. They're just... 
They, they just don't want to give up the 30%, I think, which is the main thing. But asking for 30% of all ongoing subscription fees for a service that just because somebody is using it on an iPhone is absolutely ludic- like ludicrous. There's, there's no reason for something that high. It's, it's, a hard, it's a hard one. So like I know a lot of people who are into Apple products and once you start getting them, it's very easy to then have all your hardware being Apple hardware. So like they have worked very hard on creating that brand and creating that consistency in their consumers. So you, know, you have your iPhone, your iPad, you have your iPod, and then by the time you do everything else, like if you buy an Apple TV and stuff, it's like you could literally choose to yeah. just say Apple products for everything you need for home entertainment. So I get why they're pushing so aggressively against anything that could disrupt that. That must have taken years to build up that brand to the level where they have those consumers chasing every item of their catalogue. You know, rather than having like a Samsung phone or a Toshiba TV, Windows laptop or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like they're very good at pushing people towards buying their products. Anything that's going to scare those customers away or lose customers and lose revenue, they can't afford it. But I think this is this is having the opposite effect, though. Obviously, it's not going to have like a huge mainstream like seed change to this kind of thing. But there's, there's been plenty of people on the forums and stuff saying like, well, now my next phone's going to be a Samsung or an Android because they can't use the service. And especially because like they let Microsoft test it on iOS as well. So people in the beta, like I use yeah. the beta on Android. Um, no, actually, well. but like, they've let people use it on iPhones, and then all of a sudden, it's just actually no. <laughs> New story number two: Rocksteady has finally confirmed the game it's working on, and that is a Suicide Squad game. So this comes from IGN. Um, they write: Batman Arkham series developer Rocksteady has announced it's working on a Suicide Squad video game, and will announce further details on August twenty second as part of the DC Fandom Digital Fan Event. A Suicide Squad game was first considered a possibility following the end of Batman Arkham Origins, which featured a post credit scene in which Deathstroke is asked to join the Suicide Squad. Uh, the rumours arose once again last month in the suggestion that the game's full name may be Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League. Um, so the post art featured in the tweet is uh, a evilish looking Superman looking away, and it's got a crosshair on his head, and the crosshair is the word Suicide Squad. Um, it's been a long time since Rocksteady made something. The, People loved those Batman games and uh, everyone's been keen to know what they've been working on. So at least it's out there, but I can't say I'm overly excited about a Suicide Squad game in 2021. I'm I'm mixed. I'm mixed. I always liked the idea of Suicide Squad. I'm not a big DC fan, but I always liked the idea of Suicide Squad. And the film had so much potential and I felt it just had the issue of too many main characters that never really got developed and then petered out after a bit of action. But I also love Deathstroke as a DC character. Like, I, I got really big into the Archer TV show, like the DC Archer show, or the Arrow, I should say, Green Arrow. And Deathstroke in that was amazing. Loved him as a character, loved his story arc. So that was a bit that made me go, actually, I'm a little bit interested. I kind of want to see where this goes. Yeah. He's the one with a half black, half orange face, right? Mask. Is that yeah, like so he was... He was originally one of the main enemies to the Teen Titans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then he was also I think being in Green Arrow and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like, I can't remember the name of the actor who plays him in the TV show, but does a great job. His story arc is fantastic. He is just absolutely ruthless. Like, I think it was the second season where Deathstroke becomes one of the main villains. Like, that was ugh, the peak of that show, was the season that he was a part of. You know, I've got this yeah. superhero stuff. You're only as good as your villain. Like... I, I dropped off pretty quickly after that season. Like, for me, just seeing him being in a game, 
it kind of will make me want to keep an eye on it a little bit more. Uh, yeah, sorry, I was just looking up the actor, but I couldn't find it in time before you wanted me to talk. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's good that Rockstar have announced something. I, I, I really wanted them to take a swing at a Superman game. Like, they've all been awful. And it, obviously Superman's going to be in this. And he's, he's such a draw that even the very first, all this poster is, is a picture of Superman. Like, so they know that he's going to be the draw. Um, I have seen like some fans online say they're a bit sick of the, you know, like the evil Justice League and take down the Justice League sort of storylines. But as you say, I'm not entirely a, a DC fan. So they that doesn't seem like something that's been played out too much in massive like mainstream media. It's not, it's not a storyline that I'm too familiar with. So... I'll be interested to like see how this pans out. It could be interesting because, like, I, I know the Evil Justice League might have been played out for, especially for fans of the franchise and fans of the universe. But for people like ourselves who aren't that big into DC, it's like, okay, well, I know who the Flash is, I know who Wonder Woman is, I know who Aquaman is, lol, I know who Superman is, I know who Batman is. So I, I can imagine what it would be like trying to take those people out in a kind of Batman style game. And like, it's quite easy to see what they're aiming for here. And I could see how it would pay off if they if they hit the notes right. Next, another one for Eurogamer. Everything revealed in Sony's State of Play showcase. Uh, did you see this? The, did you watch the showcase? No, I admit I completely missed it. I think one of the one of the main things people said about this is that they set expectations a little bit better than the Xbox One because they weren't hyping it up and that it was announced like not long before it. But similar to you, like I literally did not know this hack was on until it was on, like, and then people were tweeting about it as it happened, like, ah, oh, new Crash Four stuff, and ah, like a couple of announcements. Yeah, I was just saying, I'm fairly certain we were playing Warzone when this was occurring. Yeah, and I think yeah, some stuff was coming through, like the Hitman uh, VR stuff. So, so yeah, before we run through, I, I just want to say like there is managing expectations, and then there's like making sure people know your your shit's going to be revealed, because I mean it, it is mostly like not indie but you know smaller stuff there's no obviously no playstation news not much first party stuff it was just a couple of trailers of stuff that's already been announced and a few other little bits and pieces so i mean i guess it's probably good they didn't hype it up for that but i've i, it, I mean i've watched a lot of it since it just would have been a cool thing to to watch at the time um anyway so more. there's a there's a couple games in there that i think like worth mentioning like crash 4 it was always going to happen. I think they did some uh, announcements recently for that. Yeah, that's that's been known about. That's out quite soon, so that that will be a good one to keep an eye. On. Fucking love Crash, and this looks like it's back to like Crash One, Two, Three kind of stuff, which is really good. So Splunky Two, yeah, Splunky was a good game. Splunky Two, yeah, I'm on board. Yep, Splunky is amazing. Uh, Hitman Three uh, is going to get the PSVR support. All three, in fact, the Hitman trilogy is getting PSVR support, so that's quite cool. I, I'm always like, I quite like the PSVR is cool, but it's I think it needs a refresh. The camera's not very good. The tracking on the controllers isn't great. So this is cool, and I hope it comes to the higher fidelity headsets. Um, Also, Braid is getting a graphical update for some reason. I mean, you love Braid, so of all people, I thought you'd be on board with that. I fucking love Braid. I've completed like 20 times, and I've done all the speedrun achievements and everything, and I actually like speedrun it for a little while, which is bad. But, I mean, it looks fine now. You don't need a... A new version unless they're going to do like new stuff and like new twists and plots and new levels and stuff that would be cool but just up the what's there like i you know it's not like it's a ps1 game or something it's it looks fine i'm just gonna have to keep an eye like the raider game would be interesting but the vr just not the hardware i've got for that console. yeah another ps yeah one i probably watch on youtube when i can just to 
or maybe I'll buy a VR depending on how awesome it is. And if it really captures the feeling of going around choking people out as Vader, like at the uh, end scene in Rogue One. Yeah, I mean, it does seem to be based on that. There's a couple of other like little short Star Wars bits they've done, and it seems like it's made by the people who did the um, the uh, the VR experience, which they had in uh, Westfield, which we went to do in London. Ah, that which is pretty yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if it's that sort of tech, yeah. um, that could be quite impressive. But again, yeah, PSVR caveat. And then Hood, Outlaw and Legends looks pretty good. And then more on Bug Snacks, which seems to be Internet's darling currently. A bit of Bug Snacks looks a little bit of a pinata-y, I guess, but with bugs that are made of food. Nom, 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 bug nom, nom. Snacks, nom. Bug Snacks. But yeah, a couple of other little bits and pieces, but yeah, maybe it's good that it was a bit un- a bit low-key. The people that were excited about it would, you know, there's some good stuff. And I checked out the trailers afterwards and I was like, oh, this, is, this seems cool, this seems cool, this seems cool. There wasn't any, I guess there was no preamble and no like, oh my God, what are they going to show? And then no disappointment, I guess. Hard to disappoint when you don't know it's one. Moving on to the board game world now. News story number four comes from Dust Tower News. Ashes, Rise of the Phoenix Born is rising from the ashes. Cool pun headline there. Nice one, whoever wrote this. Ashes, Rise of the Phoenix Born is living up to its name. 15 months after publisher Plaid Hat Games announced the end of Ashes, the game is coming back with the version 1.5 upgrade kit followed by planned expansions. So the upgrade kit, dubbed Ashes Reborn, is being produced through a partnership between Plaid Hat Games and Team Covenant. Team Covenant is using a player-driven production model similar to like GMT's P500, where the physical printing of the new content will occur once a threshold of consumers have signed up to purchase it. In the case of Ashes Reborn, that threshold is 1,000 subscribers. And then after the initial upgrade kit, as long as there are over that level of subscribers, they will deliver new sets and decks and stuff every couple of months for the people that are subscribing. So... For people who like Ashes, this is incredible. This is also a pretty good use of, of that sort of, you know, sign up and, and then it gets made model. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I mean, that was my takeaway. I don't have any investment in Ashes as a game IP. But that business model, it's it seems like a halfway point between Kickstarter and standard retail. And I kind of like that. You know, it's just essentially a pre-order system, you know. Oh, yeah, once people sign, a thousand people sign up, we'll make the game. But they've always got exact figures how many people will be receiving it, how much income is being generated, and what your profit margin is going to be every month or quarter that you release a new yeah. product. I kind of like that. And I can see I can see that becoming a yeah. trend. going to take a hot take on this mm-hmm. one. I, a lot of people get frustrated with Kickstarter because it's pre-ordering with that knowledge where, where are you going to receive in a year, two years, five years? You just don't know. Or is a game going to fail when it gets to the manufacturing process? And this just seems much cleaner and guaranteed money and like guaranteed return on product for your money. Yeah. And I, I think it's really cool as well. Ash has definitely got a, a tough shake when it, when it not so much when it came out, but over time, like it was like a really interesting two player. I don't know if they added multiplayer afterwards, but a two player like dice and card battling game. So you make a deck, you roll your dice, the different symbols on the dice, they become like your mana pool kind of thing. And then you spend them to basically play the cards. And it was quite cool. But then, they had a whole tournament structure planned out. They had like new decks as a LCG format. So you buy the decks or you buy the packs and then you have everything. But then Plaid Hat got bought by Asmodee and that kind of fucked everything. So there was like a huge over a year gap, I think. They, they kept saying like, oh, releases are coming, but you know, we're going through all the legal stuff and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then there was like one or two new boxes and then it just sort of died away. And, and then that's when it got killed. But people do love it. And then this is a really good indication of that because... 
I don't have it here, but I'm pretty sure this is now going to go ahead. I think it was only a couple of hours, like two or three hours after it went live on the Team Covenant site that they had enough people. And so for the, the guy who designed it and, and the art team and everyone who works on it, like they know that the, you know, people do want to play it. People care about it. The money's coming in. They can keep designing it and, and they can plan ahead for like the next six to 10, 12 months or whatever, like the next two or three releases because they're getting the numbers from Covenant to know, you know, how much money's coming in and when and that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm glad the, the the game is getting a second chance. I think it's interesting. I think it's getting a second chance because you said about that acquisition previously. They split partnership earlier in 2020, didn't they? I think it was February. Yeah. So it looks like as soon as they split the partnership, they then started working on this, knowing they were going to sell up and leave. So it was almost like yeah, Asmodee basically just shut it down, and now they've gone back to being independent. They just want to be yeah, open just it again. again. So it must have made enough money for a small independent publisher compared to like one of the the larger conglomerates that don't care so much about that small figures it was generating. Yeah, it'll be interesting to to uh, keep track of where it goes from here, I think. Oh, yeah, I'm going to rely on you for that one. Yeah. Card and dice, mate. That's, That's all, all you. You've got it. this. Love a good, love a good <laughs> ongoing card game. Oh, yeah. I, I don't like buying anything unless I know I can buy 19 more things for the same thing. Where's my Arkham? Give me more Arkham. Yeah, yeah you and Zach have problems when it comes to expansions, mate. Yeah, I, I like my one and done. I don't yeah. look for games. I look for new hobbies, and then I buy it all, and then I realise I don't actually want to play it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 300 quid worth of investment. You're like, actually, the game wasn't that good. <laughs> new store number five comes to Tabletop Gaming. Um, Wizards of the Coast have announced a new D&D board game called Dungeons & Dragons The Adventure Begins. Um, it is a cooperative board game that lets you embrace the world of Dungeons & Dragons without actually playing the game. It's a cooperative adventure game where you use your character to follow the journey through lands of Neverwinter, but upon each turn, the role of Dungeon Master changes. So it's a game for two to four players aged 10 and up. It's got miniatures, it's got little maps, dice, tokens. So this they're kind of framing this as a beginner box, ages 10 and up, so it's kind of maybe like kids, but also like just people new to D&D it does seem like a, a pretty good first step into that sort of whole you know tabletop RPG thing for people that don't necessarily want to jump straight into having to like role play with a group of six people around a table if you don't really know what you're doing like if you're more familiar with a board game setting and slapping this down and getting familiar with you know the classes and the monsters and how the gameplay sort of works it looks like a pretty good first step into that kind of world for people that might be intimidated by a, a whole table full of people Agreed, hundred percent. It's it is aiming at that middle market, and like from initial impressions, it does feel like it fits that niche in the right way. Like you know, like D and D can be hard to get into, especially when you walk into like an established group of people, or whether you've never done that role play side of things before. Some people just aren't comfortable with that, which is you know, it's completely fair enough. You know, some people aren't the best at social deduction games; they don't want to lie to their friends' faces. Other people, they thrive on that. So it does seem quite, quite a good idea, and probably be one that you end up doing as like a gift to people. I can imagine it being that kind of category. It's like, do you know what? You've always said you wanted to do D and D. I'm going to buy this Christmas present as a middle ground. Yeah, I, I do think. Yeah, something you said there as well is, is pretty telling as well. That like, so if you go and play, it and all of you are new, then obviously somebody's got to be comfortable being a DM, and then they might not know how to how to do that or that kind of thing but, or, but the other side or you like go join an experience group and then you might feel like intimidated with a whole group of people that know what they're doing and you, you know you're getting the rules wrong or that kind of stuff so i mean a good dm in, in, in both cases will will make that work but as just a little box that yeah you say you can give someone and you can get them familiar like 
you can then invite them if they like it. You'd be like, oh, why don't you come and play that rogue character that you played the board game with, and and you know, come and check out what the full game's like. I think that's your. There's it. It's definitely that first step. You know, and like the fact is, aimed telling up. I think they're looking at this and going, when D and D's had quite a resurgence, like between like you know a lot of like tabletop gaming become more popular, seeing as things like Stranger Things kind of popularized it in such a way where it hit like more mainstream mainstream kind of appeal. And like if you've got a family and you're like your kid wants to play it, but you you aren't comfortable with DMing and your family's not going to be able to get together for twelve hours to play. Everyone sits and plays D for twelve hours at a time. But I mean, I, 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 I get your point. I was being generous there as well. Yeah, like every time we try to play it, you know, it's like, yeah, we're going to turn up on the Friday and then leave some point on the Sunday. What was the other one we used to play? Pathfinder? Yeah, like, because we don't really touch on those types of games that often. But there is an entire separate ecosystem inside board games, inside hobby games. No, that's true. I, 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 I played quite a bit of the uh, Star Wars RPG a little bit before the whole lockdown thing. And we played, I think, four times, like, over Zoom and voice calls and stuff. And then we just sort of petered out. Everything does. Every, like, you know, at the beginning of lockdown, everyone was like, oh, let's play loads of games online and let's do loads of quizzes. And everyone's enthusiasm has petered. Oh, not, not even enthusiasm. Like, pe- I still want to do it, but it's just the world sucks. <laughs> I mean, like, we're, we're living the new normal now. So at first, everyone was testing the yeah. waters and trying out new things just to see what fitted the new normal. And now everyone's kind of adjusted. So it's a bit hard to gauge people's interests and hobbies. And that'd be one you have to pick up in a few months with the guys. And next time, if there's a seat available, man, come on, come on, like, come on, like, we can fit an extra Wookiee in there. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. <laughs> we don't have a Wookiee in our second party, actually. So, oh, exactly. Yeah, no, we do, we do. It, yeah, don't worry. I mean, you're out it, again. So, <laughs> you were in for three seconds. You're out. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to now listen to this recording over and over, where you can hear my emotion rise and fall just as quickly. Yeah. So. <laughs> Ralph and Lisa, so you can see the exact <laughs> moment where his heart breaks. <laughs> Just call me Ralph Wigan, mate. I'm done. I know. <laughs> right, before I uh, before I make it too cruel, let's move on to the last news story. Also from Tabletop Gaming, and that is that Blood, uh, a new season of Blood Bowl is coming soon. Blood Bowl is self-described as an ultraviolet, super fun, and very competitive game of fantasy football, but given to us by Warhammer Studios. Its last edition was released in 2016 calling it vicious they called it vicious and hilarious it's a fun and exciting and a fair bit surprising but now it's 2020 it means time for a new season using the motto bigger better 100 percent blood bowl so have you ever played any of the blood bowl stuff it's been on one of those things i've wanted to play it for a long time mm. and i've never got around to it like i've seen people playing in some of like, the games workshop shops and stuff and shops and stuff like that but i just never played it myself like how about you yeah so i had the i had the original box in the 90s actually uh, it was one of the first like individual box game set things they did. That's a terrible description, but they did originally have. Obviously, they had Warhammer Fan- Fantasy and Warhammer Forty Thousand, and to get involved, it's a massive buy-in. You need the army book, you need all the, the stuff, you need blah 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 blah. But they trialed quite a few of these like little boxes, which are standalone experiences, um, and that is come- something that the Games Workshop are doing a lot more of recently, and they're having like huge success now with these things which you just buy it's got their top quality miniatures in it it's got all the rules you can sit down with one other person and you can play it there's expansions if you want and if not there's a different game to move on to but blood bowl it's really fun i think it was really really clunky it was it was the rules 
were very much of the time. So like you're rolling on injury charts and then if you get a crit on this chart, you have to roll on this injury chart and passing and fumbling and that kind of stuff. So when they did the re-release in 2016, they smoothed over some stuff, but they mostly kept it all the same, which I think was not a great idea, but it sounds like they've even modified it even more now, but it's just kind of cool. You know, so the Warhammer models, so it's like orcs versus dwarves versus elves versus goblins and they're all smashing each other's faces in but it's also american football so you have to like throw a ball around and try and get to the end zone and score points and stuff it's a it's a quite a fun little experience it does seem like a lot of fun and like one thing i say of games workshop is they've been so much better at streamlining their rules tidying it up and like i mean eight edition warhammer like 40k that was the first warhammer in some time that i did look and go actually I could probably get more on board of that because they'd removed so much of the chafe that yeah. the older ones had, like playing Warhammer Fort Fantasy as a kid. I remember just sitting there with five people, six people oh, at a table. So much. And it just, <laughs> you spend four hours just setting up to get in combat and then two hours doing the combat and then you call it a day because I've just spent eight hours playing this one game that didn't have that many highs and lows. It was all like yeah. long-term planning, but actually the units move forward in a straight line. It was quite limiting. Mm. So like, I can't. I was trying to remember the name of that one me and you played after you got to the expo. Uh, Nightfall. Thank you. Yep. Like that one for me. Like, as soon as you played that, I'm like, actually, this is quite a clever little game. It felt streamlined. There's a couple little bits that felt a bit clunky, but they felt like a Warhammer game because of that clunkiness. Yeah. You don't want to completely remove your own identity, especially after you've got such a like a massive fan base and you've got all your own shops and you've been doing this for 30 plus years. Yeah. So that's another one that I was kind of, yeah, not referencing, but... It was. Uh, it's called Warhammer Underworlds, is the series, and Box One did quite well. And it just comes with two armies, and you can play however. But then there's all the expansions armies, and then each year they've done a new edition. So Night Vault was the second one. Then there was Beastgrave, uh, and each one brings you know new armies and new spells and new cards because it's kind of deck building as well as miniatures. But that's what's good about the Games Workshop has really adapted to a changing landscape of games kind of thing. So as I say, they're doing more like standalone board games. They're doing more of the underworld stuff, doing more of the Blood Bowl stuff. But as you say, they're even changing their core games with Age of Sigmar is always improving. 40k, they've streamlined massively. And yeah, you know, I've looked at a couple of those starter army boxes like, hmm, what if I just picked up the Sisters of Battle box that looks quite cool? <laughs> uh, and they also announced the, fucking, the actual Warhammer Fantasy is coming back. And I was like, oh, okay. That could very well be the, the thing that gets me to actually buy Warhammer again because there was those armies and that lore. Like I was, I really enjoyed it as a kid, even if the actual game was a bit clunky poo poo. But I don't know why I said that <laughs> a bit. <laughs> it wasn't bad, but like I can imagine now, like if I can, if I can buy a whole new army of high elves and like stomp some fucking lizard men with. 2020 streamline rules i may be all in on that i'll be honest so like i love fantasy as well like just playing as the orcs and goblins and stuff as a kid and like skaven as well like having the rat army and stuff oh skaven like, cool, yeah. i liked the theme it went for i liked that style the 40k style never appealed to me like that's just my nature when it comes to that sort of thing yeah i'm very glad that i sold disposed of all my warhammer fantasy stuff now because the fact they're bringing it back i go okay Actually, I painted up about 600 miniatures when I was a kid. I might as well buy the new box because I might be able to reuse these. And all of a sudden, that's it. That's it. My life will be painting, playing Warhammer. Did the rest of these shelves start stripping and being sold? 
to be replaced by more Warhammer armies. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say though, it's not a bad hobby to like get into because like for like cost saving, I think, or for me anyway, because although it seems expensive and it is expensive, Warhammer is very expensive. Mm-hmm. The miniatures are so detailed and it takes me so long to paint them that I uh, don't do anything else for like a couple of months. It's like playing Final Fantasy fourteen. Like you're, you're you're paying a subscription and you're playing it loads because it's the only game you pay. You don't need to buy anything else. What I will say, if somebody decides to get to Warhammer, the lessons I learned as a child, and like I wouldn't make these mistakes now because, you know, or I like to think I wouldn't because there's 16, 17 years difference. Yeah, we'll see. But at the time, I remember going, oh, yeah, well, I'm painting on average one set every couple of weeks. But if I buy three, four sets now of any Christmas money, birthday money or work money, I'll get around to them eventually. And then losing interest and having four unpainted boxes of miniatures yeah. sitting there in a box in shrink for 10 odd years before I eventually sold them. I'm just like, so if you decide to get into that sort of stuff or any miniatures hobby, my advice is buy a couple bits, get your worth and then buy a couple more or in like X-Men case, like nearly five years worth of fun. So I really can't complain on the return on investment. Shall we move on? Yes, we should. Okay, that was the news for this week then, so time to move on to what we've been playing. It could be old, could be new, could be great, it could be awful. But this is stuff we've been doing the past seven days that we want to share with you. So, Chris, what have you been playing this week? Well, this week I only got two games I'm going to talk about this week. I played a fair few, but after I've touched on enough of the other ones I played at a different time. But this week, so far... I played a game called Bargain Quest by Renegade Games. Nice. And it's one that Shut Up and Sit Down have done a video review on. And, like, I love... I, I definitely got pulled in the hype. You know, like, I loved the idea of what I was going for. It took the normal archetype of you being adventurers through in his head by you suddenly being the shopkeepers trying to supply the adventurers with armour, weapons and loot to take out the monsters. So just the concept for me straight away was a big sell. I, I just like as as I was talking about carrying recently. I just love anything that takes the standard tropes and turns it round on its head, and they instantly get a bit of appeal for me for that. So, like this game, as I've already alluded to, so like, the idea being that you are a bunch of shopkeepers all living in this town, and just over the crest of the hill, there's a bunch of monsters that are about to take you all out. So all these heroes are coming in. They've all got a bit of cash in their pockets, like similar to when you begin an RPG or a video game. We've all got a bit of cash to start them off. And what you do is you draft cards to then get the items to put in your shop, with the idea being that you put an item on display to make your shop the most attractive, which allows you to pick the first hero. And then by choosing that first hero to take into your shop, you can then sell them any items you've got available, with the goal being to make as much money of them as you can, while also getting them prepared enough to be able to survive against the monster and to fight the monster. And like you get victory points in the game based on if your hero survives a round against a monster, that gives you a victory point. You get a victory point if your hero manages to damage or wound the monster. So if you play the round perfectly, you fleece them for all the money they've got, you damage and survive against a monster, all of a sudden you walked away with 20, 30 coins, which is two free victory points, as well as two for survive and fight the monster. But where the game is interesting is each hero's got different attributes, different skills, different attack and defense, and different amounts of money on them as well. So sometimes the card draft isn't kind to you, and you're just sitting there with trash cards. Now, we're talking like 
level one items you find in an RPG or like any of those sort of games. Like, oh, here's some here's some hardy boots. Here's a magic helmet that doesn't actually do anything, but costs extra money for buying it. And a lot of the card art and names are all a bit tongue-in-cheek as well for people who are quite keen on those sort of games. So there's a lot of like inside jokes and poking fun at itself and poking fun at the tropes that it's based on. Before we go on to the next bit, do you think it requires the knowledge of those tropes and what it's trying to hit to have a good time? Or do you think it's a good game even if you, you know, you don't understand the this is, you know, take my sword or whatever. You know, if you don't understand any of the memes or don't understand any of the 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 D and D RPG references, is it still a good game? Oh, I'm gonna have to say no. Like oh, <laughs> blunt <laughs> it, 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 I'm not trying to be that critical, but the game takes about an hour, hour and a half. And because it is essentially just card drafting and then selling items to these adventurers to then go out, you know, it's the yeah. theme is much stronger, I think, than the mechanics. And because of that, and the theme being the bigger draw, I think you might enjoy it if you've never done anything like that and never played those sort of games. But I wouldn't be comfortable recommending it to you. Yeah. So, like, I, I played it with Alex and Ruto a weekend just gone because I knew both of them would enjoy the tropes. I knew both of them would enjoy that because like, I play D&D quite a lot and I do a few other games and stuff. So it was one where I took it knowing the audience would probably enjoy the theme enough to then get past that initial rules overhead. Yeah. And, like, the thing is, like, actually all three of us came away, we all had a really good time with it. We all really enjoyed it. Probably would have played again if time permitted. But if I was to take that game down to my mum and John, that wouldn't go down well because the theme wouldn't fit. And now you're just playing a complicated card drafting game, which if you want to play like a good card drafting game, you play like Sushi Go, something that's yeah. quick, simple, 15, 20 minutes runtime. But I think because it needs you to play it for an hour, hour and a half, that's a bit of commitment for people who haven't been pulled in by the base mechanic or the theme. Which I guess is kind of a good thing that it's that it is that thematic, that having it does need that knowledge of the theme to work. Uh, like I love it because of my like affinity to in the archetype on its head and there's something deeply satisfying like there's uh, one of the heroes i won't go too far into all the individual bits but there was one of the heroes and he's a nobleman and essentially he can equip any item that you might have available rather than it being class-based so rather than it being mage ranger fighter or cleric but he also has the most money but he also has no stats so you know by taking him as the person into your shop you just want to fleece him for all of his money and send them off to die and like, as we're getting into the theme, as we're all joking back and forth about that theme aspect, there's something really satisfying about being like, yeah, do you know what? I'm going to fleece this guy over here. I'm going to send him off on his adventures with a torch, with a potion that doesn't do anything, with this magic helmet that doesn't do anything, and just let him die. Because you're like, I don't care. He can die. I'm not going to hurt the monster. <laughs> I just made 40 quid for this guy. Like, his job was to pay for me to then have better turns later on. And like it really does play in the archetypes of the genre and of the fantasy tropes. Like one of the characters is a young hero who doesn't have much money, but every time he equips something, it doubles the stats. So it doubles his attack and defense, which is used against the monster component. So it's like it's that whole, you know, oh unlock his great potential by giving him stuff that makes him twice as good as everyone else. I mean it does sound it does sound, it does sound interesting. I was only playing Devil's Advocate to, to instigate conversation but i guess the, the majority of people listening to this and the majority of people who would play games or video games have enough of a knowledge where they would enjoy it i think it's a tricky one to recommend like yeah. the shop and sit down with you 
they are showing a bit of bias. Like, I have a lot of respect for those guys, and I, I can usually gauge their opinions versus my opinions. But, like, that one, I did get pulled into the hype they felt on that video. So, like, yeah, my mixed my mixed review on that game. Cool. So that was Bargain Quest. Yes, by Renegade Games. And now for a overly positive review, and for people who don't know much about the hobby, one I will... One I will fight its corner to for now is a game called Azul by Next Move Games and Plan B Games. Yeah, I think Plan B do the version that we buy. So Azul is great. Just gonna just just just, just up front, it's great. We spoke before about gateway games, and we spoke before about games to introduce people to the hobby. And Azul is just such a clever mix of simple decision space, or what feels like a simple decision space on your turn. With tactile tiles, with this really nice plastic and really nice artwork on them, that just feel really good when you're shaking them in the bag. And all of a sudden, this game goes from being this really nice, friendly experience where you're just picking some tiles and you're going to put them on your board, and then the next person will pick some tiles, put them on their board. And then you suddenly start realising the complexity of that game isn't about what you're going to do in your turn, it's one of us is probably going to get screwed over and take something we don't want. How can I plan in advance? to make sure it's not me and it's the other person and it plays so differently at like two three four player so like i normally play as a two-player game and it's really cutthroat like it's really yeah it's really mean as a two-player game <sighs> honestly like it's so mean like a couple games of it in a row and you start nothing bitter to the other person but you really start noticing there's a like underlying tension of you keep fucking me over and i don't like it yeah. <laughs> but playing it three player and four player because you can't control each micro decision, you just have to accept sometimes is what it is. And like, I think that's why I recommend it so much. Because if you were to play it with your family, they'd enjoy it for exactly what it is. You know, it's cute, it's pretty, it's tactile. The game is so clear what it's trying to do from its theme and its rules. It just makes sense for anybody to pick it up. So I, I got carried away. I got talking about why people showing this game. I don't actually think I've touched on what you do or how the game's played. What you have is you have a board in front of you, and on that board, there's 25 squares, so 5 by 5 grid. And on the left side of that board, there is five rows going down in sequential order. So the top row's got an empty space of one, the next row's got empty spaces of two, then three, then four, then five. And that's the board you're mostly playing with. So a lot of the game feels quite staring at your own board in front of you, like that solitaire element where you're, this is what you're working with. This is how you generate points. This is what you're working towards. And in the middle, there is a bunch of factories, which has four tiles in each. And in a three-player game, there's nine factories. And in the centre, there will just be the first player token, just in the centre of these. So on your turn, you will decide to pick a factory. You'll pick a colour tile and you'll take all tiles of that colour from that factory. And any remaining will move into the centre of the board. So that is the base mechanic of the game. It's taken from that factory and putting it on your board. Now the five layers I mentioned before, the one, two, three, four, five. You will take those tokens, you've, tiles you've taken, place it on the left-hand side of your board, and once you complete the row, you can't add any more to that row. So if you pick up three blues in your first turn, and your free space is empty, you put the three blues in that space. And you'll just repeat that back to back to back to back. Why we said about the game being a bit cutthroat and why you can decide to be a bit aggressive towards your opponent 
is that every time that stuff gets moved into the middle, the middle just becomes a giant factory and it's not limited to four tiles. So if in that free play game, all three of us took from the outside tiles and factories first, that middle section just becomes a hot mess of tiles of every colour ranging in how many there are. And if you take more tiles than you can lay in a valid turn, then they go into a dead space at the bottom of the board with minus points. Basically, you've overproduced the tiles, they're smashed on the floor, minus points, you know, you've lost profit, what are you doing? So it becomes cruel in the two-player game specifically, where you can see one person's about to be forced to take eight of a colour. There's no space on the board that allows you to place eight at once. Five's the maximum. So now the game is forcing the other person to take those eight and take those minus points, rather than you taking those minus points. So once you've cleared that phase, any tiles in front of you, every time you finish one of these rows, you move them over to the right-hand side, and that's then how you score your points. Tiles that are touching, they're worth extra points. Full rows worth points, full columns worth points, getting all five colours on each row worth extra points. And that's kind of the meat of the game. And it sounds quite basic, even like explaining it there, it's super basic, and it's much easier to teach somebody why they're holding the tiles and why you're playing the game rather than try and explain all of the different elements yeah that's the problem with uh, having to describe an abstract game is that obviously like it just makes a lot more sense when you see it but yeah it's just a case of drafting tiles into blank spaces on one side of your board so that once those spaces fill up you can move it into your grid on the other side of the board and it's the fact that the the spaces on the left that you're initially drafting into are limited and because you can see everyone's board it is super easy to dick over everyone else. Like, like super easy. <laughs> and, like, oh, and I don't normally, like, I never do oh, that mate. in a game, really. Like, if even if it's like, oh, I can take one point or I can make you minus two, like, I'll, I'll still always do the me one, even though it's technically worse. Like, I'd rather I do okay and you feel not bad. Maybe not with you, but, like, if I'm playing with my wife or playing with friends, like, other friends, like, I tend <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because you're, you're, you focus primarily on being a dick, which is super, like, to your detriment in a lot of games, I think. But um, in, this, like, in this, there is a lot of strategy because it is so many points when you have excess tiles that smash to the ground. And you, it is so easy to, to just drop a whole bunch on someone. It's quite fun. Like, I found when we were playing as well, like, Alex kept forgetting my board. And because I was the player after him, I had to every now and then give him a nudge and be like, are you sure you want to do that? Because by the time he looked at my board, he realised that by doing the move he was about to do, I was going to benefit so massively of him doing that. And like, it's it's a weird game that you do. You can't just focus on your board. It's too easy to focus on it. But you're not looking at the next person. You probably made a mistake without even knowing it. It's um. I was just going to say it. It is really tactile. The tiles are awesome. It's so colourful and it looks amazing. It's really simple. I think this is one of the best new modern like gateway style games to recommend to people that aren't necessarily games. Honestly, yeah. Like it's one I'd recommend to family, to friends. Ten out of ten. Downtime gaming recommends it. <laughs> yes. Oh man, do I need to fucking Photoshop a stamp we can put on stuff now? I expect in post production there's gonna be some sort of like bell or noise or something to say, you know, like ding 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 or whatever you want to use it. It's the official noise. Um, it's the official downtime gaming recommends noise that I definitely can't repeat, so I'm gonna have to wait till post so I can copy it. (laughs) 
Oh, all right, it's Dan. So as with the board games I play, <laughs> how about you? <laughs> I also played a colourful abstract game that's going to be tricky to explain on a audio podcast. Um, but the game I played was Nova Luna, the 2020 Spiel des Jahres nominee, designed by Uri Rosenberg and Corne von Mossel, published by Pegasus Spiel, and the art is by Lucas Siegmon. So the art was really cool. That's why I put this guy on here. Lucas, you did a good job. So Nova Luna, we mentioned it briefly during our Spiel des Jahres conversation. It is a similar-ish style game, but it's... Um, Absolutely gorgeous, first of all, when, when you have it on the board. It's a abstract tableau building game kind of thing. So in the middle of the board, you have a circle, which is adorned with really cool art on all the cycles of the moon. And then you have a half moon meeple in the middle. And then around the outside are different uh, square tiles of four different colours. And they've all got a number on and other smaller circles with coloured pips on them. And it's actually like super simple. That's one of the a common theme on like these ingenious games is they are super simple, but it follows patchwork rules where on your turn from the moon counter, you can take any of the next three pieces and then you take them and add it into your tableau. And then the number that's on the tile, you move your little counter along uh, a track in the middle. You just go round and round. And then whoever is in last place on the counter, uh, on the track, gets to go again so if you take a particularly expensive tile and the next person takes so you take a seven the next person takes a three then they're going to still be behind you so then they get to go again and if they're still behind you they get to go again so the easier to complete tiles and something more more placeable tiles have the higher numbers so you bump ahead um and so sometimes it can be better to get a couple of the smaller ones the way it works once they're in your tableau is each tile has a couple of circles with colored dots inside them so I might have a blue tile and on it is a circle with a orange and a teal dot. And to complete that task, that tile would have to be next to an orange tile and a teal tile orthogonally. So up, down, left, right. If that is true, then you take one of your 20 tokens and you place it on that circle. And the aim of the game is to complete 20 of those and place 20 of your tokens before everyone else. And that is like the whole game. Okay. Yeah. Like, it sounds pretty interesting. Like I'm kind of thinking that it reminds me of, it sounded similar to Constellations, which is like a tile-based mm. space kind of mindset game. No, because the, the, the tiles are face up in the circle. So you take it from the three in front of you, you move around, and then you only refill them once there's less than two on the whole circle. So the, your options are getting more and more limited as you go. And then once all of those are done, then you refill it. And then once all those are gone, you refill it. So there are like refreshes as you go. But the way that you place the tiles and they interact with the different colors is so clever that it, it, it like make an impression sort of halfway through. Um, and my wife smashed me at it twice. Like, so there's definitely some sort of brain thing going on there. Um, but what's really clever is if, if one of the tasks on one of the tiles is uh, multiple dots of the same color, then tiles of the same color that are touching each other count as a group and only one of them needs to touch the tile that needs that challenge. So if I have a teal tile that says four yellows, you don't need four yellows surrounding it. You can have one above it and then that one can then also be touched to, th to three others. So it's like utilizing color groups in positions and then also looking at the challenges that are on your tile that you're placing is like so important as well because I was... Initially, just looking at the ones on my board, thinking, okay, this one, this teal needs an orange and a blue. I've got an orange next to it, I've got a blue in my hand, so I'll place it there, complete the challenge. But then if you're looking at the one in your hand as well, then the one that you're about to place or the one that you picked up or the ones that you're meant to be looking at, you can see like, oh, this actually also needs 
two oranges so i should actually play it on the other side where it's touching one orange and then later on if i get another orange it can go on top and it wants then it will you know tick off that challenge which also helps that challenge like it suddenly becomes this domino effect of placing the colors to get the right challenges and making sure you don't box yourself in a little bit of you can take things that your opponent might need but there's not really that like you can like obviously you can see what they're doing you can see what's there it is ridiculously simple but really really clever i just want to play it again it's 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 yeah i heartily recommend it as the the game of the year nominee from what i played from last year it is very very tricky mindwards so what sort of player count are we looking at this? Is it like only two player? Is it two to four uh, Two player? to four. And then there are solo rules as well. So technically one to four. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And like we need to have solo rules for you, mate. Yeah. So. Which they're, apparently they're not very good, which is like a weak point. But there's uh, obviously player made variants on BGG that I, I'm probably going to check out because it is... It looks really good. It plays in a very small space, really. Um, you just got the circle and the tiles around it and then your tableau. And so you get up to about... Eh, 25 to 30 tokens maybe like in front of you depending on how how bad you are and about an inch and a half square each so it doesn't take up too much space it looks really good yeah just the interactions like it just it does seem so simple but the the order in which you play stuff and whether to just make like a square so that everything's ticking off in every orthogonal direction or do you like make a like a thin line so you can easily like drop things on top of places when you when a tile becomes available when to take a like a three time tile so you move around like it might not be the best tile for you right then, but then if your tire if your time token doesn't catch up to the next player, then you get another go. So is it better to take two slightly less tokens than, you know, a seven and then you smash all the way far ahead? So there's so many interesting decisions on every go. And there's almost infinite number of like moves you can do at any one time. Like it, it is I highly recommend it. And I'm gonna play more and I'll probably talk about it again. <laughs> oh, I I'll be honest, like it looks good. It's been on my radar and I was already thinking about buying it. I was listening to you talk about it and thinking, I think I should have just bought it with my recent uh, board yeah. game purchases. Because like, I, I think it just sounds like a really nice combination of what I expect from games yeah. of that tier. You know, like It sounds like the decision space seems quite small at the time, but then every small decision suddenly escalates into this massive decision that then, you know, you're not talking tactics anymore, you're talking like your long-term strategy. All with a bit of variance, so you can't like yeah, overly yeah, plan yeah, ahead. Like I love that. I love those sort of games where you can think that short term and long term, but then also have to still adapt to whatever's going to happen in front of you. Yeah, so I was definitely looking at the the more short term, like this. I need this to go here to complete this. I need this to go there. And then when on the first game, Hannah smashed me by. I still had seven left, and there's only twenty to place. And I was like, what the hell? And then like looking back and thinking through it, it's like okay, so it's a lot more about thinking about not just the challenges you have it's the color groupings to create and then the pieces you're taking and the challenges that are on those as well as the ones that you're trying to complete it's it's cool enough where you can like step back through the game because the tableau is all in front of you you can step back and think like okay i could have placed that better i could have not taken that one this could have gone here like it has layers and um it's definitely gonna replace patchwork and it's up there with Azul, I'd say. I know you just mentioned it. And it is good, but this... I've played a lot of Azul, so we'll see. But it's looking like we're probably going to play quite a lot of this as well. So, so does, it, does, it get, does it get the downtime gaming recommendation? Or yet to be determined? It's going to get the downtime gaming recommendation. Note to self in editing process. <laughs> add sound effect here. Because I've already, compl- I'd already completely forgotten what I did. <laughs> 
Okay, okay. Okay, the recommendations are a thing that we just started throwing out today. This wasn't pre-planned. There wasn't a there wasn't a discussion. We don't have a sound effect just yet. So you'll probably hear the sound effect at the same time I hear the sound effect. I'm yeah. just gonna copy that one I made up earlier with my with my uh, with my mouth. That was good enough. I've just forgotten what it was. I'll just edit it in here as well and then we'll we'll pretend like it was good. <laughs> and just stick with it because yeah, you know, guns blazing. Uh, um <laughs> Alright, so where, where else did you get to the table this week, man? Uh, uh, to the table, that was it, actually. I, I played another game of Unmatched. I'm still waiting f- uh, for a few more characters to arrive so that we can I can talk about it a bit more in depth. I'm going to move on to the video games this week, where I'm going to do another quick one before I dive into my main one. Chris, have you heard of a small game called Kingdom Hearts 3? <laughs> uh, I don't think I have, actually. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I've managed to get away with it, so... What is Kingdom Hearts 3, Sam? Have you mentioned it before, and would you recommend it? <laughs> Honestly, I don't think I mentioned it last week, so no, no. Oh, that's weird, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I definitely mentioned it a lot on Twitter and on WhatsApp, but I just didn't mention it on the podcast. Uh, so I completely completed it. Obviously, I platinumed it. And now I'm playing the Remind DLC, which is literally, like, it's bonkers. I know the game is is plot wise is all over the place and the whole kingdom hearts world is terrible but um i just wanted to mention this quickly because it is so stupid that there's a point in kingdom hearts 3 towards the end this isn't really spoilers because it doesn't really matter where you know there's a massive trope like big bad guy attacks everyone gets wiped out oh no and then sora the main hero goes to like the afterworld and talks to some weird rat thing who pieces him back together and then he gets revived and then and it's then he comes back in like two minutes before so then the big bad guy replays his attack, but oh, this time he blocks it and then everyone's fine and then you carry on from there. Uh, so that happens in the game. And then in the DLC, the Remind DLC, you revisit that point because apparently that split the timeline as if the, the Kingdom Hearts lore wasn't convoluted enough. That splits the timeline to two different timelines. So then Sora, from when you completed the game and the main timeline, then has to go back into his own body in the new timeline so that he can use the power of waking to jump between the seven different keyblade wielders of light to piece together his missing friend so you <laughs> so you replay most of the end of kingdom hearts 3 but with like slight differences because he's now inside those people like hopping between them uh, it's kind of cool because you do get to like play as the people that you don't normally play as uh, but it is absolutely insane and then that finished, thank God. And then you get to this bit where you have to do 13 ridiculously hard bosses in a row. And I've done 11 of them. And it's very, very stupidly hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Because oh, I noticed that recently in WhatsApp, you keep telling me of this new hard boss. And two days later, you then come in telling me about another new hard so, boss. So what happened? What happened was, it originally happened while I was playing... I was playing Yakuza a long time ago. Not a long time ago, uh, about seven or eight weeks ago. I can I, again. I platinum Yakuza, but there was one. There was a bowling mini game where you had to get a turkey, which was three strikes in a row. And the bowling mini game is not very good in Yakuza. And I, it took me like an hour and a half, and it was about two in the morning. And I just complained on Twitter like, "This is bullshit." And then literally the next thing I did was complete it. And then I noticed as well that the, for the next like three times in a row, every time if I complained like very publicly or like in a group chat about a hard boss or something, I would do it like the next time. So that's why you're getting all these things in this chat. So like every time I'm like, this boss sucks. And then like, I do it 
because I don't know why. Uh, it, the, the, it, for for the most recent flight, did not work. Like I'm still getting my ass absolutely handed to me. But it's I've got three more, I think, or two more, two more to do. If I can say in Kingdom Hearts, mm. I did download Kingdom Hearts free from Game Pass. Yeah. <laughs> don't start with three. Play one, mate. I'm not going to restart one. I just I can't do it. Like Play two. I've, I've had like I Play was two. thinking about restarting two. Like Chain of Memories, I was really enjoying, and then I just stopped playing. I fell off. Same problem I had last time. Like I liked the idea of it. I liked the game, and just after about eight to ten hours of playing it, I've not felt an inclination to go back to it. Uh, I'm okay with that. You know, Two's like, really good. Two is a lot of people's favourite still. Then I might take you up on the offer of playing two at some point. I probably won't message you on WhatsApp. I'm probably just going to blindside you to a podcast at one point. No, just get your honest reaction of being like, wow, this is happening. <laughs> yeah. So we are keen. We've got a friend, Scott, who also loves Kingdom Hearts as much as I do. Putting him on blast here. I don't think he does, but now I've put it on record. Ha ha, fuck you. Um, and he wants to do like a like a proper deep dive into these as well. So it would be quite cool if you if you actually played them. Play number two. Two is really good. Play Birth by Sleep. Birth by Sleep. Play them all. Everyone should play all the Kingdom Hearts games. <laughs> Uh, that's it way too long. I'm going to cut a lot of that. Uh, and I'll move on to my proper game this week, which was uh, I played Endless Space 2 on the PC Game Pass. So Endless Space 2 is a 4X strategy game. If you don't know what 4X strategy game is, it stands for Explore, Expand, Exploit, and Exterminate. It's basically a like Civilization. Those are the typical 4X games. So they generally revolve around civilizations, funnily enough, and multiple ways to win. And the scope is huge. And I'm doing a bad job of explaining it. But it's that kind of stuff where, it like in any space, you start with basically one planet in a system and then you expand and you explore and you can go to new planets and new systems and you can discover new races. And there is so much in this game. But the good thing about these games as well is there are loads of ways to win. So you don't have to just wipe everyone off the map if you're playing a multiplayer game. You can also do have like culture victories. You can do sometimes like religious victories. You can turn everyone over to your side. You can do wonder victories where you build the in the Civ games. It's like literally the seven wonders of the world and that kind of stuff. So in this one, there are six ways to win. So you can do score, supremacy, conquest, science, economy, and wonder. Uh, and what it is, is basically just a really nicely slow-paced strategy game with as much difficulty and as much scope as you want it to have. So in this one, so each each planet system is one to like six or so planets. And so when you start, you have one planet in your system and the other ones might be inhospitable, inhabitable, inhabitable. I think, I think both work. Inhospitable works as well because you can't live there. Inhabitable yeah. is that no one's living there. Yeah, inhabitable. And then it's got an absolutely massive skill tree where you can do skills in science and military and other bits and pieces you can then have to research the technologies over time and build new buildings on your planets to keep the people happy so you can habit new planets you can build ships which you then send off to uncover new planets and new systems and new races and every time you meet a new race if it's like a minor race you can speak to them you can convince them to come over to your side you can just fight them. you can wipe them out you just genocide them there are obviously the main ais or I played a single-player game, so the main AIs which you're playing against. So when you come across them, you can do the same. You can fight them, you can discuss with them. There are so many options, and it is really, really in-depth. So even even in the tutorial, you you go through things like, it shows you, like, oh, here's the battle screen. 
So if you click on this option and then and there's like, oh, here's like nine different things you can do. And you click on each one of those. Like this is the, the four things you can do in this option. And it is like the, the, the level you can just do like auto kill or not. But there's also if you want to go in and do like, I'm going to upgrade this side of this ship and this side of this ship and I'm going to do this weird pincer attack. There's so much that you, you can do. There's like 15 currencies, including special premium ones. There's loads of ships. Everything can be customized. It is a really good relaxation game, which is why I came onto it. Like I played Endless Space 1 and I do like occasionally pop into these sorts of games to just sit for a few hours or I'd play like maybe like one a year and just play them for like a week and just chill. Like this one has got some really nice sci-fi spacey background music where it's just like, you know, like a low beat. You just sit in there, nice music, read as much as you want, uh, invest in science. I, I went like hard on science and tech and I was just getting like new ways to farm shit and my people were happy. And then there was a there was an uprising in one of my planets and you get like different, even like individual planets. I had like hundreds of planets at this point. I don't know, hundreds, like 20. And even each individual planet could be like, there's an uprising. How are you going to deal with this? Are you going to like beat them down or squash them? Or are you going to invite them into meetings and, and discuss things with them? And even that is like, has massive repercussions for your whole system uh, it is for for these times it's like a really nice sort of low-key or the way that i mean the difficulty the difficulty i had it on and the, the, the way i was playing it was like super low-key i was just like in you know finding new aliens and chatting to them but like yeah you can come live on my planets like yeah you want a trade let's trade this is awesome and then like one of the ai's started getting super aggro and i was like you're being a dick and then i just built loads of ships and set up a barrier and I declared war so he can come into our space and I just protected loads of aliens while we just chilled in our my little area uh, and I'm still playing that game like there, it plays up to 300 turns I think so it's quite a long time yeah, okay, I'm just, yeah. Just, I've just carved out my own little piece of this galaxy you can zoom all the way out it's a nice little star chart and I'm we're just over here I'm protecting some amoebas and some other guys and we're just uh Loving the space life. It's, it's really cool. I like it. It is really cool listening to the, you talk about a game, to be honest. Like, cause I played a lot of Age of Empires and stuff like that when I was a kid. Yeah. And this, to me, just sounds like the best part of Age of Empires with extra steps. Because Age of Empires was such a good, like... I'm going to use it as my example, but like Red Alert, all of those like 1990s, early 2000s RTS games. There yeah. were so many fantastic gems, like Dune, Empire Earth. Like, they just kept coming. Just hearing this game reminds me of those games mm. with all the extra tools available, all these extra choices available to you, and then off you go. Off you go. Like yeah. the world is your oyster. Do you wanna do you wanna be like a bit of a pacifist? Then off the you go. Is your oyster. It's it's mad. Like I can see why people love these games. I've never actually gotten into any of them. Yeah. But listen to you hear you talk about it. I can see why this becomes a bit of a lifestyle game. Well, I think Sims. You're right, like comparing it to like Age of Empires and Red Alert and that sort of games, it is that, but like without the bit at the end where you all have to just blow each other up, which almost every game, I mean, every game of Kamana Konga had to end like that because it had to end in military mm-hmm. victory. So this is that, but like I don't really want to fight things, you know, I'm just like, it's a really nice pace. I was playing it, I accidentally played it to about 3am on Friday. <laughs> I was just sitting... Like having a few, having a few drinks, like listening to the background music, just chilling, expanding my science. Like the way that you just start with one thing and you you can just expand out. There are like um, star lanes where you can originally can only send your ship along like specific lanes, and then later on you research tech to break off those lines and find new places. You can send out drones, and just the way you like slowly expand your galactic empire and sphere of influence is really cool. The skill tree is massive, and you can get like individual heroes, and they have their own skill tree. Like everything has multiple layers. You also get uh, 
galactic government. So every so often there are elections and a ruling party will win. And they are, so there's a super militaristic one, there's a religious one. And decisions you make will influence all of the citizens in, in your area of space. And then they'll vote for the different parties. So I, I there was a massive upswing in like the religious movement on one of my systems. And I didn't really want them to win because you I just wanted the, not the militarist one. I, I was all about like science, facts, done. Like, I just want to go into that. And there was, yeah, just some weird, like huge religious upspike. And it turned out that I got an option to then, you know, go speak to them about it. And I did. And then the, the actually the next election, which happens, there's elections every cycle and they, they narrowly lost, which was good. But then that sets like the laws you can do. And then depending on who's your ruling party, you can set the laws which govern your galactic government and which changes how things are produced and what, your people do and how they reflect and respond to aliens and like uh, alien species and that kind of stuff so i think the best thing i say is that it's really nicely paced and it's just a cool time sink if you want to just sit and waste x amount of hours however many hours that may be does it hear you talk about it hearing the adventures that you've gone on just seeing this world through it does remind me a lot of games like the sims or fifa on my team ones where you could just sink time and time and time and time and time into it. Yeah. But always feel rewarded, always feel like there's been progress. There's always bigger things happening. Yeah. You always like Civ. I mean, the people that play Civ. That you're in. Play a lot of Civ. I mean, like, luckily we weren't recording the podcast when I got into The Sims 4. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those games where like, when you get into it, you, play a lot. you forget there's other games for a month and then all of a sudden you stop playing it and you forget about The Sims and then repeat in 11 months. Yeah, and I feel like that's one of those games that fits in that category. Because like, even hearing you talk about it, you could easily have spent more time on that game just rebuilding your world, adding more to it, getting new laws. You would have all of a sudden had like a militaristic challenge you weren't expecting. And all of your hard-earned plans have gone out the window. And now it's like, okay, recovery, how can we fix this? What's my next approach? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's quite good. That it, it doesn't seem, or even so far, it's not even. It's never been boring. So, as you say, like I, I might like I want to build this thing, and it's going to take fourteen turns, and that sucks because that's ages. But I've also got fourteen. I don't know. I keep saying fourteen. I've only. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but I've also got like seven other systems, and they're all building things, and and I could turn one of them instead of building to building instead of building a ship, and I'm going to go somewhere else. Like, there's always something going on, and it's like yeah, a nice a nicely paced game. So. What was the name of that game again? This is Endless Space 2, developed by Amplitude Studios. It's actually quite a few years old. Um, I noticed it on Game Pass. The new game is coming out next year. So I will be looking forward to that. All right. Have you got played any video games this week? I just played Warzone. I'm not going to spend too much time about it. Yeah. Season 5 came out. Or Season 4, sorry, I should say. Nope, 5. You were right the first time. Ah, bollocks. Okay. All I'm going to say is Warzone, if you haven't tried it, get a couple of people together and just play a game. That's it. Like, it's free to play. It doesn't take any effort apart from the waiting for it to download. But, like, me, Sam, and Scott had a couple of games. At one point, Sam was on the wrong side of a train tracks, which have added a moving train into it now. And there were loads of randoms on Why top of the train. Why are you telling the story? We all decided to jump off the train, murder him, then jump back on the train and carry on their travels. I have just little moments like that where the game is super hard. You have to accept that if you don't play it often, you're just going to die a lot. But you just get these moments of brilliance like that. 
like I had a moment where I headshotted somebody off the back of a quad bike, and it was a super satisfying hitting of the sniper for a window when he didn't know I was there. I mean, I died instantly after, like I got absolutely mugged after. But the game is very good at creating these moments of joy, and that, that's I'll, I'll keep it brief. Still enjoying it. Probably still want to play it a couple more times. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. I think that's that's another thing. When you mentioned game like uh, lifestyle games earlier, that is definitely the, at least for me, and probably you and Scott and everyone that we play, really like the battle royale of choice right now. If we want to play that kind of game, we're going to play Warzone. And the new season definitely has been really cool. It didn't change too much. The moving train, the stadium's open now. There's new missions to do and bits and pieces, but it's still just the same super sharp gameplay. Also thoroughly enjoying it. Wish it wasn't 140 fucking gigs on my hard drive, though. Yeah. And your internet is pretty damn good there. Oh, yeah. No, it's not the, it's not the download. It's the... On, I, I learned this today from a, from a news article, but on the console version of Call of Duty, you can go into the options and choose. Like, you can untick things and it will uninstall it. You could be like, I don't want the Call of Duty campaign. I don't want multiplayer. I only want Warzone. I don't want the, the texture packs or or whatever. Like, you can pick and choose. But it's not on the PC. Like, the oh, fucking the more customizable platform is not there. So, like, I'm stuck with a hundred... Let me... I'm going to... I'm actually going to look at it right now. E drive, Modern Warfare, Properties... It's actually reduced since this morning. It's now 107 gigabytes. That's still too much for one game mode. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Luckily, it's on a one terabyte SSHD, so it's not too bad. But that's like, Actually, no, that's a 10% of my fucking drive is Warzone. <laughs> it's not that bad. It's like, yeah, all right, mate. <laughs> God damn. Two terabyte SSD coming in the next few months. Uh, yeah, I was looking at one earlier. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, it's time for this week's question or topic of discussion. Each week we take a topic to discuss further, or it could be a question from one of you. You can submit any questions you want to ask to contact at downtimegaming.co.uk or any of our usual social channels. This week it's a quick discussion on some recent leaks slash technically news, and that is that the Xbox Series S name has all but officially been confirmed. This is coming off the back of multiple industry people having seen the new Xbox controller box, which it comes in if you buy a separate individual one. And on the side of the box and in the manual, it references the Series X slash Series S. Uh, so the Series S is, of course, the oft-rumored Lockhart console. So it's one that is apparently going to be a bit weaker than the Series X, but come out at a cheaper price point to give Microsoft two different models and two different price points. Whether they do that at launch or later, we still don't know. But firstly, what's your, what's your thoughts on the naming, Chris? And how do you feel about all of this? The, name, the naming's poor. Microsoft aren't exactly known for naming. Like they're not, that, they're not great, are they? I mean, Project Scorpio, huge fan of that name. Of course, it never actually turned into a product that we saw, but as a code name, loved it. I was, if you went, oh, hey, hey, son, do you want to buy a Microsoft Scorpio? Like the new Xbox Scorpio, just sounds so much cooler than do you want to buy the Series S or the I Series think, X? I think the day one Xbox One X is were called the Scorpio edition. They did like carry at least a little bit before. Okay, okay. But yes, you're right. They're not really, they really is. And it took me that long to formulate that sentence because the Xbox One X is obviously different to the Xbox Series X, which is the new one. Exactly. And like the Xbox 360, the 360 one is a great name, but the console was that good that it made up for it. Hmm. The Xbox One is just such a 
such a mediocre name. I knew what they were trying to do. Never appreciated it. And like, it just confuses the market as well. Like, PlayStation Five. Okay, it's it's a one up from the PlayStation Four. Simple, sweet. It makes sense. Yeah. But Microsoft just haven't found. I'm hoping that now they've got this new naming convention, they at least stick with it. Because I think that's my issue with Microsoft naming convention. Whatever you decide on, just stick with it. Like Nintendo, Nintendo get away with it being quite cute about their names. Like we had the Wii, the Wii U, which nobody talks about. That was an awful Switch. Yeah, so like they've always been quite cute at their naming convention, and it's kind of expected from Nintendo. But Microsoft, I don't know, it just doesn't. So I think they're going to stick with it now, and and it'll be like a a phone thing where like the Series X will refresh, and the Series S, the Series X will always be the high one. And that'll refresh every couple of years, and the Series S will always be the middle one, and that'll refresh every few years. But the the reason why, obviously, like I know a lot of people know this already, but obviously they couldn't just come out with the Xbox Two after the Xbox and have it go up against the PlayStation Three, because numerically, obviously, Two is not as high as Three, so everyone would just assume the PS Three is the new one and the Xbox Two is the old one. And so PlayStation, as they got to just not go first because they have one model advantage, like you couldn't have a PS Four and an Xbox Three. Because it just sounds like the three is inferior, even though it's obviously not. Like just that, even that tiny bit of brand recognition. So that's why they went with PS3 versus the Xbox 360 to make it sort of inline. Uh, but they've, as you say, they've kind of lost their way since then. And the one was a bit weird. One X is fine. Series X, I think, is a good name. I quite like the Xbox Series X and the Series S as a definition. But coming straight off of the One X into Series X is slightly weak slash confusing. So my personal opinion on all of this, and where I'm looking at buying the new Xbox console, I don't have a 4K TV. I don't have any of my TVs being anywhere near that standard where I'm going to get the full graphic fidelity and full use of a large processor, larger and better you know, hardware you've installed. So I'll end up paying that premium for hardware that I can't actually use. So having that one that comes at a lower price point which might be a bit weaker in the grand scheme of things, isn't a bad thing for me. Like, if I start upgrading my TV in the future, then I can upgrade my console in the future. You know, like, same as you upgrade your monitor when you upgrade your computer, easy peasy. So having that lower price point for me is advantageous to jump into it, to still be able to get onto the next-gen hardware, still get to enjoy it and keep up to date on what's going on, but then not waste money on product that I can't fully utilise. Yeah, I agree. So I'm I'm having a for the Xbox at least I'm in the I'm going to be in the Series X camp definitely because I do have the 4K TV and the surround blah blah blah. But I think um, what's interesting is obviously PlayStation are taking a similar-ish approach, slightly different. That that they've got two PS5 SKUs that are obviously both going to be the same power because they're both PS5, but there's a discless version and a regular version. And I never buy discs. I literally never. Like I, I've got, I have the limited edition Ghibli Steelbook Blu-rays because I'm nostalgic for those movies, and that is it. So if I can get a discless PS5 for fifty quid, a hundred quid cheaper, for me that's golden. But I think as well they've they've seen what Xbox were rumored to do, come out with a cheaper console. They've constructed a way to do that because I think historically it would have been a smaller hard drive, but with these new crazy SSDs and stuff, you can't really bring the the size down too much. So. I think it's interesting that they're both coming out with a cheaper price point, but I think it does give Xbox scope to go even cheaper if they put in like a weaker graphics card in it as well. And if they then go discless as well, like you've got the, the well, Xbox sad, 
like the Xbox S All Digital Edition that came out this generation, it, that aligns quite well with their service model they're aiming for. Yeah. So like, if they only release two SKUs on release, both having disk drives, one being weaker power, I then see them two, three years down the line, then releasing their All Digital Edition as well, which then another model then coming at a cheaper price point. Yeah. So it kind of it you, you saturate the market a bit with all the different models you've got. But then you start appealing to different people who are keen to jump on and get on board the hobby, but just don't have the starting capital to get in. Especially because games are still quite expensive and it's a bit of a luxury hobby. So like yeah. honestly, I think it's just a good thing for the consumer at the end of the day. I think it's a good thing for the industry and a good thing for the market. Yeah, I think it is good that both these both the companies are playing chicken right now. Like nobody wants to announce a price. And because they 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 don't know the price, like they've given themselves leeway by having the different options as well so maybe the console the main consoles will be the same price but then sony will be a bit cheaper with the discless and microsoft will be a bit cheaper with the series s and and you're right like there might even be a i mean obviously we can't discount microsoft's x cloud which you mentioned earlier in the show like it's their streaming technology for hundreds of game plus games like there's nothing really stopping them coming out with like a fire stick size thing like a usb pen which plugs into your tv and it plays xCloud games streamed from the server for like 50 quid. And that would be absolutely game-changing. It's really fascinating seeing the way they're trying to do the hardware this year. Yeah. And you're right. I, I reckon they're probably waiting on stage sale, seeing is this really worth investing? Or whether they think actually we can compete because Game Pass is already well-known. xCloud has been doing really well since Space are coming into full release. So you're right, actually. Like you've now, you could potentially be looking at four SKUs for the new Xbox consoles, like the two on release, the all digital edition, and like a Fire Stick equivalent. And all of a sudden, if you're trying to market that to different audiences, what's your budget? Hundred quid? Here you go. Two hundred and fifty quid? Here you go. Four hundred? Here you go. Five hundred? Yeah. Here you go. Yeah, I do like the, the multiple options. Definitely, I... on both sides as well. Like I think as well. Like my bold prediction, my slash. Not that bold prediction. I think the Series X and the PS5 are going to be the same price. The PS5 discless will be 50 quid cheaper. And then the Series S will be 50 to 100 quid cheaper than that. So if you want full-size next-gen, the discless PS5 will be the cheapest, technically. But if you want next-gen Series S, then that will be by far the cheapest. I think that's the way it's going to... That's the way I see it panning out. I do agree with you there. Like, I, I do... Like my gut feeling is I think both the consoles are going to come in about 500 quid. Yeah, I think... I hope they come in about 450. I didn't want to say it, but I think that's my imaginary number is probably 500. I, I guess if we're putting numbers to this, I've seen it as the main fully updated best version of them are going to come in about 500 quid, and it'll be price match for PS5 and Xbox Series X. Then drop 50 to 100 for the PlayStation disc list. And the reason why I say 100... I think because if you can buy it from their store rather than from discs, Sony are going to get a bigger cut on the sales. And then you don't have to worry about second-hand sales. So you purposely price it cheaper to then try and increase software sales down the line. I think 100 quid just for it without a disc drive. I think that's a... That's a leap. That's my theory. Yeah. No evidence, of course. No, 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 no. It's a good, it's a good uh, guess as any. But... I could see them trying to be aggressive on that pricing point to then, A tried to fight against Microsoft's Series S, which my theory, that's going to come in about 350 or 400. So having it come in at a lower, coming that in at a lower price point puts them in a very competitive space to get a more better quality console for that amount of money. 
and then the software sales you generate from having the PS5 without a disk drive will then compensate for that loss that you've taken on the hardware. And that's kind of where like, I my lay of the land is. Yeah, maybe. Like I could easily be wrong on so many parts of this. I, th- I think Microsoft are going to be really aggressive with the Series S pricing. I think we could see two two fifty out of the gate. Oof. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't complain because that's the one I'm going to be buying. No, that, I mean that's the, that's the main thing. Yeah. That's, that's that's the main takeaway here between the two companies and all the different SKUs and whatever you want to get at whatever price point. Like everyone wins. Like there there is something for everyone. Like, if you want brand new games, if you want cheaper consoles, there's you know you can go all in, you can not, and you can still play next gen. Like this is going to be one of the best like dual console releases for consumers. Hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed in a while. I'm okay. I'm okay with this. Like from start to finish, I want to see more SKUs, more price points, and it allows the consumer then to make the decision that's best for them as a person. Yeah, definitely. And not even forgetting, like if the consoles are the same price, you save literally hundreds of pounds by having an Xbox and Game Pass instead of having to buy a PlayStation game separately. Like the value prop of that is insane. I think we mention it a lot. Like Game Pass is amazing, and it is worth mentioning. But if you want next-gen games and the consoles are exactly the same price, you you literally save hundreds of pounds by having an Xbox and Game Pass. I still stand by, like, I feel the PlayStation 5 is going to have some banging games in it to the point where by the time you get halfway the generation, I'll probably own both consoles. But because there's so many banging games on the PlayStation that are single-player, you have to then ask yourself, do I need yeah. to jump into this game day one or can I just avoid social media for a month, skip all the spoilers and pick the game up in two, three years? Still have the exact same experience I would have had. I mean, that's what's good as that's what's good as well, right? They're, 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 the companies are fundamentally making different games as well, which is also good. Like you can, I'm an eye about which one's better. Like, okay, clearly PlayStation do have the much better exclusives, and they are great oh, games. Hundred percent right now. There's no denying it. Like, but Xbox are making different games. Like Microsoft are doing what they want to do to sell their services and occasionally sell their boxes, but they more they more care about Game Pass, but you can also get a PlayStation and play those amazing games. It's not like they're both like competing in exactly the same fronts. They're both doing completely different stuff and it's going to be great whatever you choose and whatever you want to play, which is great for everyone. My theory is going to be, and another Chris hot take here, uh, my theory is that Microsoft are going to start focusing more on the multiplayer as time and time goes by and Sony are going to focus more on a single player and that will then be the divide on what console is best for you. What yeah is going to better suit your life, your friends, your social groups. And then you'll pick a console based on what you prefer. I mean, it's not that much of a bold guess because that's what they've both been doing for the last five years, but I get the sentiment. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're a little bit right, but do you know what? In, 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 like, I'm probably the first person on the entire internet who's ever said that, so you know, like, yeah, I'm claiming it's a hot take. Not since the 360 days, anything. <laughs> well, I think like, we are hopefully scheduled to find out price details and more this month on both because they need to start getting pre-orders in so we'll look after that and we'll discuss those when they come in i guess but if you have a question that you want us to answer on the show or if you just want to send us any other mail you can do that too send a mail to contact at downtimegaming.co.uk but that's it from us this week another episode done and dusted committed to the history books if you like what you've heard then please subscribe on whatever podcast and app or service you use and hey why not leave us a review 
if you can as well. We appreciate each and every one of them. And um, we'd just like to say a massive thanks to everyone who's listened to the show so far. The feedback has been really good. And honestly, I, we, I don't know about you, Chris, but I never thought we'd even get like 10 people listening. So we're actually thrilled that people are listening and enjoying it and actually like engaging on us with us on things and, you know, feedbacking and, and letting us know how we're doing. Honestly, kind of huge, hugely surprised. Like, A, we'll be doing this for a month. And when we've been joking about this idea, I didn't think we'd still be here. But no. the, the comments, the questions, like people bringing up topics that we've discussed to me at a personal level, it's been so nice, man. Like, honestly, thank you all for listening. It's, yeah, it's been pretty awesome. We're enjoying doing this. And here's another month, mate. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and if everyone's to see what we do, then head on over to your website, downtimegaming.co.uk. We're also on Instagram at downtime underscore gaming and on Twitter at exactly the same. Uh, so with that, we'll wish you another great week ahead. Everyone stay safe and we'll see you at the same time next week. All right, see you later.